0: CHAPTER Twenty-One, PART I. OF ADAM BEDE BY GEORGE Eliot. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY TOM DENHAM. THE NIGHT SCHOOL AND THE SCHOOLMASTER Bartle Massey's was one of a few scattered houses on the edge of a common which was divided by the road to Treadleston. Adam reached it in a quarter of an hour after leaving the hall farm, and when he had his hand on the door-latch he could see through the curtainless window that there were eight or nine heads bending over the desks, lighted by thin dips. When he entered a reading lesson was going forward, and Bartle Massey merely nodded, leaving him to take his place where he pleased. He had not come for the sake of a lesson to-night, and his mind was too full of personal matters, too full of the last two hours he had passed in Hetty's presence, for him to amuse himself with a book till school was over. So he sat down in a corner, and looked on with an absent mind. It was a sort of scene which Adam had beheld almost weekly for years. He knew by heart every arabesque flourish in the framed specimen of Bartle Massey's handwriting, which hung over the schoolmaster's head, by way of keeping a lofty ideal before the minds of his pupils. He knew the backs of all the books on the shelf running along the whitewashed wall above the pegs for the slates. He knew exactly how many grains were gone out of the ear of Indian corn that hung from one of the rafters. He had long ago exhausted the resources of his imagination in trying to think, how the bunch of leathery seaweed had looked and grown in its native element. And from the place where he sat, he could make nothing of the old map of England that hung against the opposite wall, for age had turned it of a fine yellow-brown, something like that of a well-seasoned meerschaum. The drama that was going on was almost as familiar as the scene. Nevertheless, Habit, had not made him indifferent to it, and even in his present self-absorbed mood Adam felt a momentary stirring of the old fellow-feeling, as he looked at the rough men painfully holding pen or pencil with their cramped hands, or humbly labouring through their reading lesson. The reading class, now seated on the form in front of the schoolmaster's desk, consisted of the three most backward pupils— Adam would have known it only by seeing Bartle Massey's face as he looked over his spectacles, which he had shifted to the ridge of his nose, not requiring them for present purposes. The face wore its mildest expression. The grizzled, bushy eyebrows had taken their more acute angle of compassionate kindness, and the mouth, habitually compressed with a pout of the lower lip, was relaxed so as to be ready to speak a helpful word or syllable in a moment. This gentle expression was the more interesting, because the schoolmaster's nose, an irregular aquiline, twisted a little on one side, had rather a formidable character, and his brow, moreover, had that peculiar tension which always impresses one as a sign of a keen, impatient temperament. The blue veins stood out like cords under the transparent yellow skin, and this intimidating brow was softened by no tendency to baldness, for the grey, bristly hair, cut down to about an inch in length, stood round it in as close ranks as ever. "'Nay, Bill, nay,' Bartle was saying in a kind tone, as he nodded to Adam, "'begin that again.' and then perhaps it'll come to you what D-R-Y spells. It's the same lesson you read last week, you know. Bill was a sturdy fellow, aged four and twenty, an excellent stone sawyer, who could get as good wages as any man in the trade of his years. But he found a reading lesson in words of one syllable a harder matter to deal with, and the hardest stone he had ever had to saw. The letters, he complained, were so uncommon alike there's no telling them one from another, the sawyer's business not being concerned with minute differences such as exist between a letter with its tail turned up and a letter with its tail turned down. But Bill had a firm determination that he would learn to read, founded chiefly on two reasons— First, that Tom Haslow, his cousin, could read anything right off, whether it was print or writing, and Tom had sent him a letter from twenty miles off, saying how he was prospering in the world, and had got an overlooker's place. Secondly, that Sam Phillips, who soared with him, had learned to read when he was turned twenty, and what could be done by a little fellow like Sam Phillips, Bill considered, could be done by himself, seeing that he could pound Sam into wet clay if circumstances required it. So here he was, pointing his big finger towards three words at once, and turning his head on one side, that he might better keep hold with his eye of the one word which was to be discriminated out of the group. The amount of knowledge Bartle Massey must possess— was something so dim and vast that Bill's imagination recoiled before it. He would hardly have ventured to deny that the schoolmaster might have something to do in bringing about the regular return of daylight and the changes in the weather. The man seated next to Bill was of a very different type. He was a Methodist brickmaker, who, after spending thirty years of his life, in perfect satisfaction with his ignorance, had lately got religion, and along with it the desire to read the Bible. But with him, too, learning was a heavy business, and on his way out to-night he had offered, as usual, a special prayer for help, seeing that he had undertaken this hard task with a single eye to the nourishment of his soul, that he might have a greater abundance of texts and hymns wherewith to banish evil memories and the temptations of old habit, or, in brief language, the devil. For the brickmaker had been a notorious poacher, and was suspected, though there was no good evidence against him, of being the man who had shot a neighboring gamekeeper in the leg. However that might be, it is certain that shortly after the accident referred to, which was coincident with the arrival of an awakening Methodist preacher at Treddleston, A great change had been observed in the brickmaker, and though he was still known in the neighborhood by his old sobriquet of brimstone, there was nothing he held in so much horror as any further transactions with that evil-smelling element. He was a broad-chested fellow with a fervid temperament, which helped him better— in imbibing religious ideas than in the dry process of acquiring the mere human knowledge of the alphabet indeed he had been already a little shaken in his resolution by a brother methodist who assured him that the letter was a mere obstruction to the spirit and expressed a fear that brimstone was too eager for the knowledge that puffeth up the third beginner was a much more promising pupil. He was a tall but thin and wiry man, nearly as old as brimstone, with a very pale face and hands stained a deep blue. He was a dyer who, in the course of dipping homespun wool and old women's petticoats, had got fired with the ambition to learn a great deal more about the strange secrets of colour. He had already a high reputation in the district for his dyes, and he was bent on discovering some method by which he could reduce the expense of crimsons and scarlets. The druggist at Treddleston had given him a notion that he might save himself a great deal of labour and expense if he could learn to read, and so he had begun to give his spare hours to the night school, resolving that his little chap— "'should lose no time in coming to Mr. Massey's day-school "'as soon as he was old enough. "'It was touching to see these three big men, "'with the marks of their hard labour about them, "'anxiously bending over the worn books "'and painfully making out, "'The grass is green, "'the sticks are dry, "'the corn is ripe. "'A very hard lesson to pass to after columns of single words, all alike except in the first letter. It was almost as if three rough animals were making humble efforts to learn how they might become human. And it touched the tenderest fibre in Bartle Massey's nature, for such full-grown children as these were the only pupils for whom he had no severe epithets, and no impatient tones. He was not gifted— with an imperturbable temper, and on music nights it was apparent that patience could never be an easy virtue to him. But this evening, as he glances over his spectacles at Bill Downs the Sawyer, who is turning his head on one side with a desperate sense of blankness before the letters D, R, Y, his eyes shed their mildest and most encouraging light. After the reading class, two youths between sixteen and nineteen came up with the imaginary bills of parcels which they had been writing out on their slates and were now required to calculate off-hand a test which they stood with such imperfect success that bartlemasy whose eyes had been glaring at them ominously through his spectacles for some minutes at length burst out in a bitter high-pitched tone pausing between every sentence to wrap the floor with a knobbed stick which rested between his legs. "'Now you see, you don't do this thing a bit better than you did a fortnight ago, and I'll tell you what's the reason. You want to learn accounts, that's well and good. But you think all you need to do to learn accounts is to come to me and do sums for an hour or so, two or three times a week?' "'and no sooner do you get your caps on and turn out of doors again "'than you sweep the whole thing clean out of your mind. "'You go whistling about and take no more care what you're thinking of "'than if your heads were gutters for any rubbish to swill through "'that happened to be in the way, "'and if you get a good notion in em that's pretty soon washed out again. "'You think knowledge is to be got cheap. "'You'll come and pay Bartle Massey sixpence a week,' "'and he'll make you clever at figures without your taking any trouble. "'But knowledge isn't to be got with paying sixpence, let me tell you. "'If you're to know figures, you must turn them over in your heads "'and keep your thoughts fixed on them. "'There's nothing you can't turn into a sum, "'for there's nothing but what's got number in it, even a fool. "'You may say to yourselves, "'I'm one fool and Jack's another,' if my fool's head weighed four pound and jack's three pound three ounces and three quarters how many pennyweights heavier would my head be than jack's a man that had got his heart in learning figures would make sums for himself and work em in his head when he sat at his shoemaking, he'd count his stitches by fives, and then put a price on his stitches, say half a farthing, and then see how much money he could get in an hour, and then ask himself how much money he'd get in a day at that rate, and then how much ten workmen would get working three or twenty or a hundred years at that rate, and all the while his needle would be going just as fast as if he'd left his head empty for the devil to dance in. But the long and the short of it is. I'll have nobody in my night school that doesn't strive to learn what he comes to learn, as hard as if he were striving to get out of a dark hole into broad daylight. I'll send no man away because he's stupid. If Billy Taft the idiot wanted to learn anything, I'd not refuse to teach him. But I'll not throw away good knowledge on people who think they can get it by the sixth "'and carry it away with them as they would an ounce of snuff. "'So never come to me again if you can't show "'that you've been working with your own heads "'instead of thinking that you can pay for mine to work for you. "'That's the last word I've got to say to you.' "'With this final sentence, "'Bartle Massey gave a sharper rap than ever with his knobbed stick.' and the discomfited lads got up to go with a sulky look. The other pupils had happily only their writing-books to show, in various stages of progress from pot-hooks to round text, and mere pen-strokes, however perverse, were less exasperating to Bartle than false arithmetic. He was a little more severe than usual on Jacob's story's Zeds, of which poor Jacob had written a pageful, all with their tops turned the wrong way, with a puzzled sense that they were not right somehow. But he observed in apology that it was a letter you never wanted hardly, and he thought it had only been put there to finish off the alphabet-like, though Ampersand would have done as well for what he could see.' at last the pupils had all taken their hats and said their good-nights and adam knowing his old master's habits rose and said shall i put the candles out mr Massey? yes my boy yes all but this which i'll carry into the house and just lock the outer door now you're near it said bartle getting his stick in the fitting angle to help him in descending from his stool he was no sooner on the ground than it became obvious why the stick was necessary. The left leg was much shorter than the right. But the schoolmaster was so active with his lameness that it was hardly thought of as a misfortune. And if you had seen him make his way along the schoolroom floor and up the step into his kitchen, you would perhaps have understood why the naughty boys sometimes felt that his pace might be indefinitely quickened and that he and his stick might overtake them even in their swiftest run. The moment he appeared at the kitchen door with the candle in his hand, a faint whimpering began in the chimney-corner, and a brown and tan-coloured bitch, of that wise-looking breed with short legs and long body, known to an unmechanical generation as turnspits, came creeping along the floor, wagging her tail and hesitating at every other step, as if her affections were painfully divided between the hamper in the chimney-corner and the master, whom she could not leave without a greeting. "'Well, vixen, well, then, how are the babbies?' said the schoolmaster, making haste towards the chimney-corner, and holding the candle over the low hamper, where two extremely blind puppies lifted up their heads towards the light— from a nest of flannel and wool. Vixen could not even see her master look at them without painful excitement. She got into the hamper and got out again the next moment, and behaved with true feminine folly, though looking all the while as wise as a dwarf, with a large old-fashioned head and body on the most abbreviated legs. "'Why, you've got a family, I see, Mr. Massey,' "'said Adam, smiling, as he came into the kitchen. "'How's that? I thought it was against the law here.' "'Law? What's the use of law when a man's once such a fool "'as to let a woman into his house?' said Bartle, "'turning away from the hamper with some bitterness. "'He always called Vixen a woman, "'and seemed to have lost all consciousness "'that he was using a figure of speech. "'If I'd known Vixen was a woman,' I'd never have held the boys from drowning her. But when I'd got her into my hand, I was forced to take her. And now you see what she's brought me to, the sly, hypocritical wench.' Bartle spoke these last words in a rasping tone of reproach, and looked at Vixen, who poked down her head and turned up her eyes towards him with a keen sense of opprobrium and contrived to be brought to bed on a sunday at church-time i've wished again and again i'd been a bloody-minded man that i could have strangled the mother and the brats with one cord i'm glad it was no worse a cause kept you from church said adam i was afraid you must be ill for the first time in your life and i was particularly sorry not to have you at church yesterday "'Ah, my boy, I know why, I know why,' said Bartle kindly, going up to Adam, and raising his hand up to the shoulder that was almost on a level with his own head. "'You've had a rough bit of road to get over since I saw you. A rough bit of road. But I'm in hopes there are better times coming for you. I've got some news to tell you. But I must get my supper first, for I'm hungry.' I'm hungry. Sit down, sit down. End of chapter twenty one, part one. Recording by Tom Denham.